Eisen. Welcome to Ring Talk and happy Mother's Day to all you wonderful moms out there. Uh, some of you who are boxing fans, especially if your son's a boxer, um, we have a, a, a great show for you lined up today. Well, you'll be the judge of that. Today, we're going to discuss one of the five most important fights in the history of boxing ever. And this is the fight between Jack Johnson, the first black man to ever challenge for a world heavyweight title against the first Canadian to be world heavyweight champion, Tommy Burns. Now, Johnson, there were great fighters before Johnson, black fighters, but because of the racism endemic to the sport, they didn't get a chance. And so when I go to the Boxing Hall of Fame in Canastota, New York, which if you haven't gone, you got to go because it's heaven on earth. They do. They just do uh, Ed Brophy, Jeff Brophy, all of them do a fantastic job. And when you look at the fighters that are around, John L. Sullivan was considered the first gloved heavyweight champion. I don't accept that. I consider him the first white gloved heavyweight champion because at that time, the best heavyweight in the world was the Australian fighter, the black fighter, Peter Jackson. And John or Sullivan would not fight him. And also there was a Canadian, George Godfrey, who was the same height, 5'10 and a half as Sullivan, and issued two challenges, challenged him at Madison Square Garden. Uh, uh, Godfrey only weighed 175 pounds. He was originally from the Bog, which is part of Charlottetown. The, you know, Charlottetown, the black population today is infinitesimal, but in the 1860s, you know, it gave birth to, to Godfrey and George Budge Byers, and they became two world, they were called colored world champions. Then, but really, they were the best in their weight divisions back then. Byers was a great champion. He was a middleweight champ. And he and when, went on to train Sam Langford, the greatest fighter from Weymouth Falls, Nova Scotia, to never win a world title. Okay, so Sullivan wouldn't fight black fighters. He drew the color line. So Sullivan has the world title. He loses it to Corbett. Corbett beats him. Corbett loses the title to Fitzsimmons. Fitzsimmons fights a brick wall named James J. Jeffries called the Boilermaker, who was an outlier back then. He was 6'3", 225. Back then, a, a fighter that was 5'10", was gigantic. A fighter that was 6'3", was like from another planet. It, it would be like Tyson Fury is considered today. You know, I worked for Lennox Lewis. It was just over 6'5", and I'm 5'9". Lennox Lewis is huge, but not as big as Tyson Fury. So we we have Fitzsimmons losing a title to Jeffries. Jeffries remains undefeated. He would not fight a black man. And all the fighters from Sullivan on said, I'll fight anyone except the black guy. And at the time Jeffries was champ, you had the great Sam Langford, the Canadian. You had Jack Johnson. You had Sam McVeigh and, of course, the great Joe Jeanette from New Jersey. So he would not fight them. And so he retires undefeated in 1905, and he has a tournament. And in the tournament, uh, Marvin Hart becomes the next champion. He was from Kentucky, virulent racist. And he beats Jack Root, who was originally from Germany, who was more of a light heavyweight. Hart was 6'1", 6'2". Hart, Marvin Hart wins. And at this time, we have Tommy Burns, who eventually beats Hart in 1906 for the world title. 
I'm getting ahead of myself a bit here. So Tommy Burns, born 1881 in Hanover, Ontario, to an Italian father and a German mother. And Hanover is a very small town in Ontario, and I believe it's the place of the Canadian, I believe it's the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. No, that's St. Mary's. Sorry, got that wrong. Okay, so we have we have Tommy Burns. Burns grows up, and as he's growing up in Hanover, he's doing manual labor, chopping trees and that, he gets into a lot of fights. But unlike a lot of people of that time, he loved fighting. It just it emboldened him, it embraced him, it made him feel alive. And he was a good athlete. He's only 5'7". So as he got older, he became exceptionally skilled at lacrosse, which is Canada's national sport. Not hockey, lacrosse. And lacrosse back then was very vicious. There were a lot of fights. And people loved hiring Burns for their team. Because if fights broke out, Burns single-handedly could take out the other team as well as the fans that were attacking his team. Burns could really fight. It is not fair to say, like some boxing historians have, that Burns was the most unskilled heavyweight champion. That's not the case at all. Burns was quite skilled. He knew what he was doing. He learned it from Sam Biddle in Detroit. In Detroit, where he was playing lacrosse, someone said to him, you should really take up boxing. This is really what you look to be good at. Started to train with Sam Biddle, who was an old boxing trainer, manager, very curmudgeonly nasty, mean guy. But he taught Burns the ins and out of the boxing business, and he showed him how to fight. What Burns was exceptional at was only 5'7", he could use his full weight, which is usually 168 to 175. He could get full leverage on his punches. And as any trainer will tell you, it doesn't. it's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. If you get hit with a sandbag in the chin that's 175 pounds, you're going to go. So Burns knew this. And he took on a lot of guys. Mike Shrek was one who was 6'5 or something and knocked him out. He beat a lot of guys that were much bigger than him because he knew all about balance and leverage. John Arthur Johnson, Jack Johnson, was born in 1878. To the, he was the, a child of, of uh, a couple that his mother was tiny. That was her name, Tiny. And she, her and her husband were former slaves. And I think they had 12 children. Johnson grew up in extreme poverty. And around, I guess, the age of 17, 18, he'd seen fights growing up. He'd actually gone to boxing matches. He wanted to be a prize fighter. So he embarks on a career in his native Galveston, Texas. That's where he starts fighting. And then he starts traveling all across the United States. And he has pretty good success. He's winning some. And he's winning fights mostly. He's losing some here and there. But his life changes when he fights one of the all-time greats of the bare-knuckle era, Jewish Joe Kowinski. Kowinski uh, was then fighting with gloves. They had fought, he had fought before that barehanded. And he actually was in a famous fight with James J. Corbett, who they knew each other since they were eight years old, eight years old on a barge in San Francisco it was something like a 28-round fight, which Corbett eventually won by knockout. And so Johnson is fighting Kowinski in Galveston, Texas. Fights were illegal back then. They held the fight anyways. Kowinski's 5'10", 5'10", 5'11". Johnson's almost 6'1". 
Kowinski realizes early in the fight, first couple of rounds, I can't hit him. He's too tall for me, and he keeps moving back. So Kowinski used an old trick that fighters use today. He took his hands and he exaggerated his defense. He put his hands up high, inviting Johnson to hit him in the stomach. That was deliberate. It was a trick. So when Johnson leaned forward with his left jab, Kowinski, who was also right-handed, moved his left foot back and then shot a left hook out, caught Johnson on the side of the head on the temple, knocked him out cold, fourth round. And Johnson admitted later, I, I was unconscious for a long time. They're immediately arrested after the fight. They're put in jail for about a month. And during the day, they put on boxing exhibitions for the jailers and the other prisoners. And Johnson said that one month in jail is what made him a great fighter because Kowinski broke him down uh, pugilistically and said, this is what you need to do to win. He said, I never, if I fought you a thousand times, I should never have caught you with that left hand. That was a big mistake on your part. You're too physically big to get caught with a punch like that because of your reach and your height you should not be coming forward. You should be keeping every fight on the end of your jab and walking guys into your right hand, thereby using their momentum, their own momentum, to knock them out. And that's what Johnson did. He mastered that art. You rarely see Johnson attacking. He did when he fought Willard because he had no chance or no choice at that point in the fight. He, had, he wanted to get rid of him. And also when he knocked out Stanley Ketchell, he was angry at Ketchell because they'd broken the pre-fight agreement. But for most of his fights, people would rush him. Jeffries rushed him. Burns rushed him. And he would let them walk into right hands all the time. So Johnson is moving up the heavyweight ladder after that. And probably by, by 1904, he lost to Quinsky in 1901. By 1904, he's the best heavyweight in the world. But no one will fight him. Certainly not Jeffries. Jeffries won't fight him. Thank you for your comments, Vinny. And... Um, so Johnson has to fight, and a lot. this happened all the time to black heavyweights. He had to fight every other black heavyweight, and they would fight each other 20, 30, 40 times and before they would get a chance at a white fighter. Now, Johnson got a chance to fight Marvin Hart, who would become world heavyweight champ, but the referee was a former fighter and promoter, Alec Gregaines, who was also a bigot. Johnson beat Hart up, but he didn't go all out. He agreed to not knock him out and they gave the decision to heart this happened to a lot of black fighters so nothing johnson can do about it if you complain well the promoter pulls out a gun puts it to your head and it's nothing you can do about it back then so he's still fighting he's still beating guys but very few white fighters want to fight him tommy burns gets a shot at marvin hart for the title marvin hart was not all there in the head, and he was a hothead, as was Burns at time. Hart, before the fight, Burns says, I don't like the way your hands are wrapped. Do it over. And Hart doesn't want to, but they force him to do it over. I don't like your gloves. Get another pair. I don't like your shoes. There's something wrong with them. I don't like the sash around your trunks. I don't like your trunks. And every time he's bringing all these things up, Hart is, you know, he's just, it's like, going into a fit of Jackie Gleason. Steam's coming out of his ears. He's so angry 
at Burns. He wants to strangle him. He's screaming at him. And Burns is calm because he knows an angry fighter can't fight. He knows Hart will just rush at him like a madman. And that's exactly what happened. Hart rushed at him like a madman, throwing wild windmill punches. And, and Burns calmly avoided the punches and beat the hell out of Hart and won the world title. After he wins the world title, he makes a comment that got world attention. It was revolutionary. It was as revolutionary as the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. Tommy Burns, the first world heavyweight champion, the first prominent white boxer to say, I will fight any man on earth. I don't care what his skin color is. I don't care what his religion is. I don't care what he looks like. I don't care what country he's from, black, white, yellow, purple, whatever he is. If the money's right, I'll fight him. And once he says that, he gets insulted by John L. Sullivan, James Corbett insults him, Bob Fitzsimmons. All these previous champions call him uh, a, a bum, a scalawag, a rogue. How dare you say that? You can't fight a black man. But he said, I, I, I don't care. I, I'm not in this you know, to be prejudiced. I'm in this to make money. That's the only reason I want to do this. And what most people don't know was Burns's first wife was a lady named Irene Pepper, who was mixed parentage. She was she had a, a black father, white mother, and her brother Harry was one of Burns' sparring partners. Burns had fought six African Americans before he actually fought for the world title and fought Jack Johnson. So these two, Johnson and Burns, are on a collision course, and. Burns keeps avoiding Johnson, not because he's black, but because he's the best fighter in the world. And Burns thinks, you know, I want to hold on to this title and make some money. So Burns is traveling all over the world. He goes to, to Australia and beats Bill Squires. He goes and he beats all these Australian and English fighters who really aren't up to his level. But everywhere he goes in England and Australia, even in the States, Jack Johnson has a front row seat and is heckling him during each fight, gets in the ring after like Ali did with Liston and says, you have to fight me. I'm the best fighter in the world. I'm the best heavyweight. You know it. You're just a bluffer until you fight me. And Burns won't fight him. Finally, newspapers in England and Australia say we should kick Burns out of the country unless he agrees to fight Jack Johnson. So, Burns says, well, I have an idea. I know how to get out of this. I'll fight Johnson, no problem, but I want 30 grand. Now, back then, in 1908, 30 grand was equivalent to about $700,000, $800,000 today. And Burns' logic for demanding such a high fee was sound. It, it made sense. If I'm going to fight the best challenger out there, who is Johnson by far, I should get the most money. And he did. And he thought, but... No one's going to pay this, but he was wrong. Hugh D. McIntosh, who they nicknamed Hugh Deal McIntosh of Australia, said, I'll pay you the 30 grand. And Burns was sort of dumbstruck. What do you mean you're paying? I'll pay it. Fight's on. Johnson got five grand, and Johnson was incensed that he got five grand. But Johnson also knew, even today in boxing, most guys, like last night, for instance, Canelo got 15 million. Bivol got $2 million. $2 million is not petty amount of money. It's a lot of money, but it's not $15 million. 
Johnson knew once he won the title, he could make money off of it then. So they agreed to fight in Australia. Part of the deal, which a lot of people don't know, was Johnson said, I will fight Burns, and I agree if I win, I will fight Sam Langford, give him a shot at the title at the National Sporting Club in London within the next three months. So Langford fought Johnson. A lot of revisionist history about this. It was only Langford's 20th fight years before. People say, well, Langford did so well and he won and he got ripped off and Johnson wouldn't face him again. Not true. Johnson beat the crap out of him for 20 rounds. He dropped Langford six times. Langford dropped him once. It was a wide unanimous decision in Boston for Johnson. But Johnson had seen Langford in this in the subsequent five, six years saw how good he became and thought, why take the chance? So we have the fight, Johnson, Burns, Rush Cutters Bay, a lot, of, a lot of racial tension leading up to the fight, especially in the promotion. 20,000 sailors from the American fleet are in port in Sydney, Australia, and they, New South Wales, and they come, they come to the fight. Johnson, during the fight, had to put up with racial epithets, as he did in all his fights, from Burns and from other people, from the fans, from the reporters even. Burns never looked at boxing in racial terms. It, he, as he said, it was tough enough just beating the guy in front of you. I'm not going to carry the onus of my entire race on my shoulders. I'm not fighting to redeem my people. I'm not fighting as the Black Hope or to save my race. I'm just fighting for me, and that's it. But white fans wouldn't accept that. So they kept on him and on him and on him. And it got to a point during the fight with Burns where Johnson, who was smiling the whole time, thought, well, now, now that you won't stop doing this to me, and I've told you I'm just fighting for me, I'm going to take it out on Burns. It wasn't really a fight. It was a massacre. Burns didn't win more than five seconds of any round. The fight starts, the referee, they couldn't agree on a referee, was Hugh McIntosh, the promoter. The fight starts five seconds into the fight. Johnson hits Burns, right hand, drops him. Burns is stunned. Gets up, Johnson whacks him, knocks him down again. Johnson's 6'1", 220. Burns is 5'7", 170. Huge weight difference, huge height differential. Burns believed, and many white fighters and fans believed, they actually believed that black fighters were so scared, they believed this, this racial slur, that the minute a fight started, when a white man approached him to throw a punch, that a black fighter would go, oh my God, turn around and run away. Never happened. And they used to say to about black fighters like Johnson and Langford, hit him on the stomach. Black fighters don't like getting hit in the stomach, to which Langford once responded to a fan. Do you know anyone that likes getting hit in the stomach? So he's pounding Burns from the first round on. He hits him with the right hand, knocks him down. He's killing him with his jab. And as you watch the fight, he's not, you can see this on the tape. He's not only hitting Burns, he's turning his attention to the fans yelling at him, and he's smiling and talking to them. Yep. Yeah, hi, how you doing? Nice to see you. Hey, nice to see you. Hey, I like your wife's hat. That's nice. 
hey, that's a nice hat you got on, sir. Nice. And as he's doing it, he's whacking Burns, at, you know, of his own free will. Just whenever he wants, he's pounding him, just hitting him with right hands, left uppercuts, and there's nothing Burns can do about it. Burns has is not a dumb fighter, but he has no way of solving the riddle of Jack Johnson. Too big, too strong, too smart, too fast. And each round goes like this. People are screaming at him. He's smiling. And then in, in third, fourth, fifth round and on, he lifts his shirt up. Or doesn't he doesn't have a shirt. I was going to say I lift my shirt up, but I don't want to get that many laughs. He lifts, he lifts his arms up, and he says to Johnson, or to Burns, excuse me, hit me in the stomach right here. Come on, Mr. Tommy, hit me. I'll let you. And Burns hits him. And he says, now hit me here in the liver. And Burns hits him. Hit me again. After he does it, he pats him on the head. Good boy, Tommy. Your mommy will be proud. Good boy, Mr. Tommy. And he says to, to Burns, here, hit me one time here in the cheek. And Burns hits him. Good for you, Mr. Tommy. And as he's hitting him, he keep, you know, he keeps letting Burns hit him at times. And he says, Is is that all? Ah, oh, Mr. Tommy, you hit like my little sister. You hit like a girl. You're a sissy boy. He's emasculating him. He's he's taking away his manhood. He's actually letting Burns hit him and laughing at him while he does it. And then he does what Ali did to Liston in the first fight. Johnson starts calling his shots. Tommy, here comes a double jab. And he hits him with a double jab. Here comes a right hand to the chin. Now here comes a right uppercut. Burns knows what's coming, but he can't do anything about it. Johnson, in the course of the fight, breaks Burns' jaw, busts his nose, closes his eyes. Burns is a mess. And as this is going on, Burns is getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And he starts calling Johnson the worst imaginable racist words you can imagine. He uses the N-word over and over. Come fight me, you cur, you yellow dog. And Johnson said after... If I had killed him, and I certainly could have, I would have been justified in doing so for the way that he treated me, for what he called me. Burns is trying his best, and Johnson just has his left arm out, holding it on his head, and there's nothing Burns can do about it. It's a fearful beating. Now, the controversy from this fight arises in the ending. Some of you have probably seen this fight on YouTube. In 1967, Bill Caton and Jim Jacobs, who went on to manage Mike Tyson, came out with a film called Legendary Champions. And you can still get it, and it's boxing from 1889 on film to 1929. And they showed the, the Johnson-Burns fight. And they showed the ending in, in the 14th round, where, where Johnson hits him a right hand, and Burns, his arms go up in the air, and he's falling forward, and then the tape stops. The narrator says, and that's exactly when the police went up into the, the filming booth, stopped the fight, and entered the ring and stopped the fight. Well, that's simply not true. Because if you see on the film, they show a clip of the booth. The booth in which the cameraman was filming was like a wooden shed, like a phone booth made out of wood with a, a part of it cut out for the camera. But it was on like a 20 or 30 foot pole up in the air. So there's no way police could have got up there unless they had the ladder that the cameraman used, but it wasn't available to them. They didn't stop the fight or stop the filming of the fight. What had happened was 
in the 14th round, just before, Johnson's corner said, it's enough. The crowd's getting ugly. We don't want you to get attacked. Just end it. Johnson came out, hit him immediately. Burns goes down. It can barely make it up. Johnson hits him again. Burns goes down. Burns gets up. And then at that point, people are screaming, don't let him knock the white man out. They didn't phrase it that way. And the promoter, the referee, Hugh McIntosh, gets in between them and stops the fight. The police enter the ring. Johnson's awarded a points victory. The point in the film where Burns is falling and the film stops and they said the tape runs out, that wasn't true. There is There was a tape of Burns hitting the canvas and the referee's counting and Burns barely beats the count. What happened to it? Well, when I spoke to Steve, the late great Steve Lott, who worked for Big Fights Incorporated, he said when the fight of the, the film of the fight came out, riots occurred all over the world. People were killed. Black people were killed celebrating Johnson's victory in the United States and in other parts of the world. So what the what people did, what distributors did is they edited the tape. They took out the last part of the 14th round where Burns hits the canvas. And they said, well, this is when the fight ends. You don't need to see the white man getting knocked down by the black man. And it's unfortunate that they did that because it would still be great to see that today as part of history. I asked Steve Lott if that film still exists. He said, I understand there is there are several copies. I couldn't tell you where on earth they are. I've been looking for them myself for 40 years. So if anyone has a copy, please let us know. But Burns went down. Would have been counted out, except there would have been a riot. So they went in and they stopped the fight. Same thing happened when Johnson beat Jeffries in what they called the fight of the century. Johnson knocks Jeffries down twice in the 15th round. And the promoter, who's also the ref there, Tex Ricker, stops the fight. Otherwise, Jeffries never would have made it to his feet. So after this fight, Jack Johnson's the heavyweight champ. And when he leaves Australia, he sails for Canada. He goes to Victoria, B.C., where he won't can't get a hotel room. They'll let his white wife in, but they won't let him in. So he has to stay at a friend's place. Johnson has the title from 1908 to 1915, in which he defends finally at the age of 37 in 120 degree weather, out of shape against uh, Jess Willard, who knocks him out in the 26th round. And it was a legitimate knockout, although Johnson claims it wasn't. Johnson ends up going the prison after because he'd been convicted on a trumped up charge on the Mann Act. Goes to prison, comes back to the States, gets out after a year, and he continues fighting here and there, but but he's getting older, hard to make money, opens a club, club closes, you know, works in a flea circus, sadly, in New York, goes around, just travels around the country. He's sort of a nomad. His best friend is a Torontonian named Johnny Coulon, who my grandparents, when they first got married, had a house beside him in Toronto. And on the other side of the house was Mary, on the other side of that was Mary Pickford's house. Anyways, Coulon became the Bantamweight champion while Johnson was the world heavyweight champ. They became very close. Johnson uh, lives out his life making appearances all over the world, traveling. He marries a woman named Irene Pinot, who supports him, a wealthy widow. 
And Johnson uh, died in 1946. Before he died, uh, he'd gone to, um, he predicted that Joe Lewis would lose his first fight to Max Schmeling. And no one believed him. They thought he was just a jealous guy. He said he'll lose because when, when Lewis throws his left jab out, he doesn't bring it back up like this. He leaves it by his hand. And he was right by his side, excuse me. Schmeling caught him and knocked him out, although Lewis caught up with him in the rematch a couple years later and knocked Schmeling out in two minutes. So Johnson was not popular amongst a lot of black fighters until many years later, such as Muhammad Ali, who adored him. Because of Johnson and his antics, a lot of black fighters were denied chances at getting world title shots, and that really upset them. So Johnson is living in Chicago. He's going down to visit relatives in 46. Johnny Colon, the former Bantamweight champ, his best friend who owned a gym there, which Ali later trained at, begged him not to go. He said, you know what it's like in the South. They treat you like dirt, and you'll get angry, and something bad will happen. He said, I can handle it. He goes to a restaurant when he's in the South. They, they tell him in a racist way to go around to the back and get his food. They won't let him enter. He explains that he's Jack Johnson, the former heavyweight champ. They know who he is. He's so angry at the indignity. He gets in the car. His friend says, let me drive. You're too angry. Tells his friend to shut up. Drives, starts speeding, hits a tree, flies into the tree, breaks his neck, and dies. He is gone. Tommy Burns, before Jack Johnson died, had written him a letter uh, several years earlier apologizing for the way he treated him before and during the fight. And Johnson was kind enough to accept this apology. After the fight, losing the fight to Johnson, Burns fought some more times. He won some more fights, but nothing of consequence. Retired for a long time. Kept fighting. Uh, I like retired and then came back and kept fighting and lost fights. Promoted a famous fight in 1913 in Calgary between Luther McCarty and Arthur Pelkey for the white world heavyweight title, which ended, I guess, a minute or two into the first round when McCarty got hit a light shot and died. Uh, it was found out later on that McCarty fought with a broken neck because he'd been horseback riding the day before and broke his neck and should not have been allowed to fight, but made everyone swear not to tell anyone. Burns became a minister and preached all over. He settled in Vancouver. He had no money. He was broke for most of the rest of his life from the 20s until the 50s when he died. When he died, there was no headstone and he was going to be buried in a pauper's grave. But luckily for him, one of his oldest and best friends was Cyclone Taylor, all-time hockey great, who got a bunch of guys that were well off to chip in and buy him an expensive casket, get him a nice burial plot, and a headstone. Otherwise, we would never have known where Tommy Burns was buried. The fight itself, there were a lot of controversies about it that Johnson agreed to carry him and agreed to win by decision, but that's simply not true. You know, Johnson may have agreed to not knock him out in the early rounds, which was quite common for good fighters back then, black and white. But come the 14th round, he was definitely trying to knock him out. This was the first, he wasn't the first black man to be a world champion. That belonged, that title belonged to a Canadian, George Dixon from Africville, Nova Scotia, who held the bad and white title and the featherweight title. Second man to win a world uh, title, black man to win a world boxing title was, was the great Barbados Joe Walcott, who won the welterweight title. And the third one 
although Americans will claim he's the first because they don't know, was Joe Gans, the great Joe Gans, who was the lightweight champion. Jack Johnson was the fourth man of color to win an undisputed world boxing champion. He's considered today to be the greatest defensive fighter of all time. Also, he was pardoned by President Trump for his Man Act uh, conviction, which was uh, issued to him just after he became champion. And it was, it was not trying to make a pun here, but it was, uh, it was trumped up, never should have been convicted. It was his own wife he was taken across state lines. His own wife was a prostitute before she married him, but he wasn't living off her avails when he was traveling with her at that time. The law was enacted specifically to get Jack Johnson. And when he was convicted, he jumped bail, came to Canada, and then went to Europe to continue his career. Uh, Johnson and Burns were never really friends. Uh, Burns admitted years later how great he was. I don't personally accept the racism of that time towards Johnson or any black fighter. People like to say it's okay because that's how it was back then. It's not okay and it's never acceptable. Jack Johnson has to be rated in the top five or even three heavyweight champions of all time. You can't compare him to a Tyson Fury or Lennox Lewis or Larry Holmes or Foreman because he fought in a different style. When, when Jack Johnson fought, his hands were like this rather than like this. So different style, but he had a tremendous uh, gift, a mastery of the ring geography. He knew where he was at all times in the ring. He, he could keep track of everything that was going on in the ring. He knew what his opponent was going to do before his opponent even knew it. And he was always thinking two or three steps ahead. Tommy Burns was a very good champion of his time. He was, people say, well, he was small. He wasn't that talented. He was, a lot of people deride him as being the, the worst of all, but he wasn't. He was much better than Primo Carnera, and he was much better than Jess Willard. You know, he could have easily beaten both guys, although they were both much taller than him. He came along, he was a bridge champion. He was the champion between Jeffries and Johnson. And Johnson, when Johnson became champ, he signaled a new era in boxing, and that boxing changed. Rather than two men going forth and attacking each other, Johnson was the classic counterpuncher who let you knock yourself out. So in closing, if you haven't seen this fight, please go to YouTube. Please watch this fight. It's a fascinating historical document, not only of the first black man to become world heavyweight champion and what a life he had, but of the time boxing became modernized. It went from Burns, who fought like a lot of the old champions, to a modern champion like Jack Johnson, who used a lot of the modern techniques that are still in usage today. December 26, 1908, Rushcutters Bay, Jack Johnson ascends to become the first black man ever to hold the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. I'm Lou Eisen, and this has been Ring Talk. Thank you for watching.